0: On August 17, 2008, Dave Freeman, co-author of the book 100 Things to Do Before You Die, died at age 47 from a head injury incurred in a fall at his home. His book inspired the movie The Bucket List. Freeman's own list included things like attending the Academy Awards running with the bulls in Pamplona, Spain, and taking a voodoo pilgrimage in Haiti. According to his family, Freeman had actually completed only about 50 of the 100 things on his bucket list before he died. And that's a reminder to all of us that we may never accomplish the things we hope to do in this life. So many times I've observed folks who we make plans. You know, we're going to do all of those things when we retire, or something like that. And and then uh, things happen, don't they? We don't accomplish what we intended to accomplish. He died at a relatively young age, <clears throat> reminding us none of us have long. None of us know how long we have to live, right? And tragically for Freeman, though, among his 100 things that he wanted to do before he died, he did not include putting his faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, the most important thing for anyone to do, for through that and through him we have eternal life. We live forever. You know, if we put everything into this life without preparing for the next life, we will live a wasted life. And that's what Ecclesiastes tells us this morning. Death renders meaningless a life that is Christless. We look at people who live for their parties and for their toys And we look at them and say they're wasting their lives. Rightly so. They are. The Bible calls them fools, actually, because they live to play. Life is a game and the one who ends up with the most toys wins. It's foolishness. But what about the productive person who is driven to succeed in life, who works hard, It is career or her job. We tend to think of this person as not wasting their lives, his or her life, because he is driven to to achieve much in life. She's a type A personality who goes after all of life with gusto. Well, Ecclesiastes tells us that life is wasted too. In fact, both lives are wasted, equally wasted. Death is the great equalizer. Whether you partied your way through life, or you ran a Fortune 500 company, death ends it all equally. Both lives are equally meaningless apart from Christ. So if you were here this morning, and you just want to enjoy life then death will make your life meaningless in the end. And if you are here this morning and you are driven to succeed, to achieve and accomplish much in life, then death will render your life just as meaningless. Unless you choose to follow Christ, death will render all that you do here on earth meaningless. Let's look at Solomon's exploration this morning. First, into wisdom. In the face of death, he says, Wisdom cannot save us. Verse 12, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness and folly, foolishness. For what will, man, what will the man do who will come after the king, except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. So wisdom or folly, what will it be? Which is better? Now, last Sunday, we examined Solomon's test of basically folly, of pleasure, of parties and fun. (coughs) He pursued all the fun that money can buy, and he had all the money that he could possibly want in order to pursue all that fun. And he says, what? It's all pointless. It's meaningless. Now he sets out to compare the value of all of that foolishness with the value of wisdom and living a wise life. And as a wealthy king who owned as much as any man could own. He was in a unique position to compare the values of wisdom and folly, foolishness. I mean, who could do more than a king, he says in this opening verse. The one who comes after him might be able to do as much as him, but certainly cannot do more. He can only do what has already been done. So I've examined it. He examined, he says, Wisdom and compared it to foolishness. Now, wisdom in the New Testament is the ability to live well. To make good and sensible decisions in life. It is skillful living. Successful living. That's what wisdom is in the Old Testament. Wisdom accomplishes much in life. Foolishness or folly characterizes the party person who lives to play and have fun. Now Solomon compares these two lifestyles the party person with the wise person the fool with the with the foolishness with wisdom And Solomon says when he when he compares these two lifestyles he found that wisdom was better than folly that was his conclusion There was much more to gain from living a wise life Being successful and skillful at life. Wisdom was profitable, he says. It was gainful. It was useful. In fact, he compares it. He says, just as light is better than darkness, so wisdom is better than folly. The wise, you see, have eyes in their heads and can see where they are going. So they make good decisions in life. But the fool walks in darkness. He cannot see where he is going. And so he makes bad decisions in life. And yet, the preacher observes, in the end, what happens? The same fate befalls them both. The same end overtakes them both. Both die. The wise and the fool face the exact same end in life... There is no difference whether you were wise and made great decisions and lived a very successful life and had a successful career and you accumulated all sorts of things in life or you were foolish and you just had fun and you partied your way and played your way through life. Death comes for both equally. Now look at verse 15. Then... This is conclusion. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me, because he's the wise person. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, This too is vanity. This too is pointless. This too is meaningless. Why bother being wise then? Right? What happens to the fool is going to happen to the wise person. They both die. So why spend your life being wise? (laughs) Why spend your life making good, sensible decisions and working hard to achieve much in this life if you're going to end up in the same place as the fool who played his way through life? Death is inevitable, right? Now aside from the return of Christ we'll say all right Christians immediately go to that that peace and that is important i understand but aside from the return of Christ death is inevitable for every single person who lives you cannot escape it no matter how hard you try and people try very hard to escape death you can ignore it you can deny it in fact most people do we don't pay much we don't want to talk about death in our culture until the funeral comes, and then it's not the person who's dead who's talking about it anymore, see? We ignore it, you can deny it, but you cannot escape it. Woody Allen once said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work, I want to achieve it by not dying. (laughs) August 6, 1945, just before the end of World War II, Sutomo Yamaguchi a maritime engineer was in Hiroshima, Japan on a business trip. At 8.15 in the morning, he heard a bomber fly overhead and suddenly there was a great flash of light and he was blown over by a powerful force. A U.S. bomber had just dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan, which killed some 140,000 people in the city, but not Yamaguchi. He survived the the blast, though his face and arms were burned, he suffered temporary blindness, his hearing was damaged, but he survived. He stayed in Hiroshima that night, and the next day, Yamaguchi was able, was well enough to travel, so he traveled on return to his home city. His home city was 190 miles southwest of Hiroshima. His home city was Nagasaki. Those of you who know history, of course, know that three days after the bombing of Hiroshima an atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Again, Yamaguchi saw a great flash of light. The building he was in was blown over. He was knocked unconscious but he was not seriously hurt and he did not die. Though 70,000 people in Nagasaki died. He lived through that atomic blast. The man who survived two atomic bombs and the potential delayed effects of radiation poisoning survived also the lesser perils of daily life for another 65 years. But he couldn't cheat death forever, just as no one else can. This year, at the age of 93, the man who survived two atomic bombs died of old age. Death is inevitable. The most important question you ought to face in life is what will happen to me when I die? Because that is one thing everyone in this room can be certain of. But we don't think about it, do we? I don't know when you will die. I don't know when I will die. But I can tell you this... It is appointed unto man once to die. God appoints that. And after that, the judgment. We will all die, and we will all face the judgment of God. You say, okay, Dave, I know that we will die, and I know that we will face God's judgment, but doesn't God just sort of weigh out our good and our bad, our wise and our foolishness, and if we're good enough, we get into heaven, right? No. No. That's not how God does it. Death is the great equalizer of good and bad. Even the wisest man on earth is still a sinner, just like the most foolish man on earth. And when he dies, his works are remembered no more. They do not save him. The Bible tells us that we are saved how? Solely by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and His grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's all by His grace. There's no other way to be saved. You can be the the goodest man on earth. Terrible English. You can be the best person. You can be the wisest person. You can be the most successful person in life. And when you die, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior... You have not trusted in his grace. You're no different than the most foolish person who partied his way through life and ignored God and death. For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. It's all of God. Are you trusting him? Look at verses 16 and 17. Because when we die, he says, our works are remembered no more. He says, For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. All those accomplishments, all that wisdom, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Because everything is futility and striving after wind, chasing after the wind. We all want to be remembered after we die. That's why when we attend funerals, and I do many funerals, and we always at funerals speak of the good things in remembrance of the person who has died. We call it eulogizing or a eulogy. But the remembrance doesn't last, maybe for a generation at best or two. We live under the illusion that if we live wisely, then we will leave a lasting legacy of our good in this world. And we assume that the fool will not have this legacy to leave behind. Surely how we live has value after we died. It's remembered, right? wrong. It does not. The wise dies just like the fool. He says, I've observed it over and over again. No wonder. No wonder he hated life. If the wisdom I practice in life has no intrinsic value, that is, no value in and of itself, why bother? It is pointless to live that way. The fool and the wise end up on the same cold hard slab in the end. We all end up in the grave and our legacies don't last no matter how hard we try. And we try hard to make our legacies last, to make people remember us. Dr. David Eagleman, an assistant professor of neuroscience and psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine, is the founder of an organization called Death Switch. It's an automated online service that for 1995 a year, at least that's what it was, I don't know, maybe the price has gone off, it allows a person to be a member, and after you die, the computers will send email messages to the people that you list on your list of recipients, and you can send whatever messages you want after you're dead, so that they will remember you. It can be anything from computer passwords, that might be actually useful, (laughs) or a love note to the last word of an argument, and you get the last word. It's one way to do it, I guess. Eagleman says that this service is a way of bridging mortality, making us immortal, making us remembered. Brian Rosenthal, CEO of the Silicon Valley-based e-commerce consulting firm RoboCommerce, recommends death switch enthusiastically. It extends our reach, says Rosenthal. You can store some part of yourself that lasts beyond your life. We want to be remembered from the grave. But in fact, those memories fade quickly. And the tombstones are soon neglected. Do you like to walk in cemeteries? I do, actually. (laughs) It's kind of interesting to go into, especially old cemeteries, right? Very interesting. But it's obvious in many of those cemeteries that nobody knows who these people are, nobody knows their stories. In fact, it's interesting to walk around and read some of them and try to recreate what those stories are because nobody remembers them anymore. We might re- be remembered for a generation or two, but beyond that, we're footnotes on the pages of history at, at best. February seven is the day Sinclair Lewis was born in 1885 at South Center, Minnesota. Sinclair Lewis won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1930. He became became a well-known, classic writer, right? For all of his renown and all of his wealth, he died in Rome of alcoholism. And upon his death in 1951, he was cremated and his ashes sent to Rome's U.S. embassy for disposition. One morning, a visitor walking in the embassy noticed a worker on her knees with a dustpan and broom. Next to her was an overturned funerary urn. When asked what she was doing, she replied nonchalantly, sweeping up Sinclair Lewis. (laughs) Great! That's a metaphor for Ecclesiastes. That's what it comes down to, sweeping up David Christensen. You know? Doesn't that make you feel good this morning? (laughs) Death turns all of us from the famous to the ordinary into ashes. That's it. It's all emptiness. It's all chasing after the wind. In the face of death, Wisdom cannot save us. Secondly, in the face of death, work cannot satisfy us. If wisdom cannot save us from the emptiness of life, surely work will satisfy us. Surely what we do in our careers and in our jobs, that will be satisfying You know, when you're young and and you're ready to go, you think, wow, I get this job, this is my dream job, and it's going to be very satisfying, very fulfilling. And then about, what, 40 or 50 years' age, you you have that middle-age crisis, and all of a sudden, nothing, (laughs) it's definitely not satisfying. Furthermore, the preacher concludes that work cannot satisfy us because death Nullifies its value. Look at verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, my work, for which I had labored under the sun. I worked hard for, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. One man put it this way when he suddenly found himself on a hospital bed. He writes, I came to realize I no longer really cared for what the world chases after, such as how much money you have in the bank, how many cars are parked in the garage. As it says in Ecclesiastes, chasing after these things is like chasing the wind anyway. Suddenly the rat race became vanity vanity to me, utter vanity. I felt naked before God. If I died, I would take none of this stuff with me. All that really mattered ultimately was my relationship with the Lord, my relationship with family and friends. If it weren't for the loss of my health, I could have wasted the rest of my life chasing achievements and acquiring more transitory things in my career. Wow. Woke up to that truth. But it took near death to do that. We like to celebrate Labor Day by not laboring. But even labor is meaningless apart from God. We can't take it with us, so all that we work to achieve has no permanent value. Death nullifies the value of our work. And he gives us three reasons in these verses. We can call these Labor Day lessons, if you will. Number one, we cannot control what happens after we die. We cannot control what happens after we die. And those of you who are taking notes, see, you're stuck with a blank sheet, so you've got to write all this stuff down if you're taking notes, because I didn't have time when I found out Dad wasn't preaching to get the notes into the bulletin, all right? Verse 19. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? This is the one who comes after me, who takes over everything. Who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored, by acting wisely under the sun. This, too, is vanity. So I worked really hard, and I made all kinds of wise decisions, right? And I was very successful in life. But i got to turn it over to somebody else, and who knows whether that person's a fool or not. But he gets control. When we die, everything we've worked so hard to achieve will be turned over to others. We can't take it with us. and We cannot control what happens to it. We try, don't we? We try to control it with our last wills and testaments and other kinds of contractual things. But in reality, even those are often challenged in court, neglected, forgotten, lost, our houses, our properties, our offices, our bank accounts, taken over by somebody else. Somebody else is going to have that office. Somebody else is going to have that job. If we have no will, the state takes over everything and decides where it goes. That's a good reason to have a will, by the way, if you don't. See, we cannot know in advance what the person will be like who takes control of all the fruits of our hard work and our wise living. We cannot know whether this person will be wise or foolish. Now scholars wonder if Solomon wasn't actually thinking of his own family here. Because if you know the story of Solomon, his son Rehoboam will take over the kingdom. All that Solomon built up and this was the apex, the height of the Israelite kingdom in the Old Testament, wealth and power and beauty and and everything that he had built up by his decisions and his hard work in life and his son Rehoboam takes it over. And scholars wonder if he didn't already have the idea that Rehoboam was a fool because he was and it was in Rehoboam's reign when he took over after his father died that the kingdom fell apart and he wasted all of that and in fact the kingdom was divided never to be united again in Israelite Old Testament history. The whole thing gone. In one generation no less. My son did it all. Solomon could say from the other side of the grave All that Solomon had achieved through wisdom and hard work was gone in one generation. We cannot control what happens after we die. Second Labor Day lesson, we must leave our assets for others to enjoy. Verse 20, Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. Now that's depressing. (laughs) All you've worked so hard to build up will be enjoyed, he says, by those who didn't work a bit for it. It happens one case at a time. But the transfer of wealth from one generation to the next is huge. It's huge. That's why I say that life insurance is really death insurance. It's a way of passing on to others a means of paying for your death and gaining value from your death in monetary terms. I mean, in the end... In most cases, our children enjoy the fruits of our work. Our savings go to them, to be enjoyed by them. And they never lifted a hand to earn it. Now that's depressing. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't buy life insurance, all right? Or we shouldn't care about trust funds or our kids or those kinds of things, bank accounts that will be passed on to them. We love them. We love them dearly. (laughs) And there is great wisdom in planning for those kinds of things because we love our families, our children. But the reality is, the truth is, that they will enjoy the results of our work. That's the reality. You will pass it on one day as others pass it on to you too. Frank Sinatra's daughter, Tina Sinatra, recalls her father's unceasing drive to succeed and make money. Even when his health was at risk, his health was in tatters, his life mired in financial struggles, but he refused to stop giving concerts. I've just got to earn more money, he said. His performances became sad and and very poorly done. Uncertain of his memory, he became dependent on teleprompters. When she saw him at Desert Inn in Las Vegas, he struggled through the show and he felt so sick at the end that he needed oxygen from a tank that he kept on hand. At another show, he forgot the lyrics to Second Time Around, a ballad he had sung a thousand times. His adoring audiences finished it for him when he couldn't remember the words anymore. She couldn't bear to see her father struggle like this. She remembered all the times he repeated the old maxim, you got to get out before you hit the mat. But he didn't. He wanted to retire at the top of his game, but it was long gone. Pushing 80, he lost track of when to quit. After seeing one too many of these fiascos, Tina told him, Pop, you can stop now. You don't have to stay on the road. With a sad stricken expression he said no I've got to earn more money I have to make sure everyone is taken care of driven to do that guess what after his death there were constant family court battles over who gets what from all that he had worked to earn Solomon says, it's all meaningless when you live life like that. The third reason why work cannot satisfy us is that we face frustration in the jobs we do now. Verse 22. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. (coughs) The reality is our work is filled with frustration and sorrow. Whatever job you have, There's frustrations, there's sorrows, there's struggle. And in fact, the more serious you are about your work, the more sorrowful the work is. If you take your work seriously, you can't even rest at night, Solomon says. You wake up thinking about what decisions have to be made and what are the pressures of the job and what are the things that have to be done You're thinking about work so much that you can't even sleep at night sometimes, and all that needs to be done. And you work really hard and you take it really seriously, try to do your very best in your career and in your job. And then someone higher up on the food chain makes a decision and wipes out all that hard work. You feel like it's all meaningless. Work's not fun. I don't care what job you have, there's going to be frustration, there's going to be sorrow, there's going to be struggle in it. So you go through all of this frustration, you go through all of this struggle, only in the end to die and leave it all behind you. So it's all rather pointless, isn't it? He says. The whole process is pointless. Well, it's been a depressing sermon, hasn't it? Go out and work real hard this week because it's all pointless. (laughs) Doesn't that just motivate you? What do we do with all of this? (laughs) I can send you out this morning to your pointless life or I can point you to the one who overcomes the pointlessness of life. And who's that? Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who gives meaning to our lives. Solomon isn't factoring that in in his explanation here at this point in his study. Of course, he will at the end of the book. When Christ is at the center of our lives, even the ordinary becomes extraordinary. There is joy in life when it is life lived for the Lord. We can be happy with the work we do when we do it for him. Listen to these testimonies of those who have gone before us. and, And notice how different they are, though filled with struggle, filled with pain. Notice how different they are than Ecclesiastes, because the Lord is factored in at the center of it all. When I was growing up in Pakistan, where my parents were missionaries, as most of you know, I was often told stories of two particular people from the late 1800s, early 1900s, who were missionaries in what was then India, to the Muslim people there. These two people were partners in the work of God on the mission field. One was known as Praising Patterson, and the other was known as Praying Hyde. Praising Patterson was always praising God. And he was always full of joy and well-known for how he always could see. He was outgoing. He was, you know, that kind of personality. He was partnered with a man called Praying Hyde. Praying Hyde's name was John Hyde. And he was a very intense and very serious man. And some even called him morose and morbid sometimes. Just very serious, and he was very intent, and he spent much, much time in prayer, and that's why he got the name Praying Hyde. One day, a rather lively lady thought she would have a little fun with him at his expense, and she asked him, "'Don't you think, Mr. Hyde, that a lady who dances can go to heaven?' He looked at her with a little smile and said quietly, I do not see how a lady can go to heaven unless she dances. And then he went on to talk to her about the joys of forgiven sin and of life in Jesus Christ. I think his motive was a little different than she perceived serving God, but he didn't look at it as a sacrifice. It was a joy! He was dancing through life. Even if he didn't show it in his feet. Another famous missionary to the Muslims was Samuel Zwamer. In 1897, he, his wife, and two daughters sailed to the Persian Gulf to work among Muslims in Bahrain. Their evangelism was totally fruitless. Not one person came to Christ in those years. Work among Muslims is very hard without many results. The temperatures regularly soared to 107 degrees on the veranda in the shade. In July of 1904, both his daughters, ages 4 and 7, died within eight days of each other. Yet, 50 years later, when Samuel Zwamer looked back on this period in his life, he wrote, The sheer joy of it all comes back. Gladly, I would do it all over again. Can you say that, no matter what you're facing on your job this week? Or in your life this week? David Livingston, talking about all of his years in Africa says, I never made a sacrifice. It was a joy. You see, people who are really living for the Lord find joy, happiness. Not in the circumstances. Those are painful. Those are struggling. That's Ecclesiastes is right. It's hard. But when you're doing it for the Lord, it changes everything. And there is a happiness in serving the Lord that the world will never ever understand. And there is a fulfillment in serving the Lord that nobody can understand unless they know the Lord. Life is not meaningless or wasted when we live it for Him. For 11 years, Mary Leonard of Louisville, Kentucky has dealt with polymorphism polymyositis, a rare inflammatory tissue disease that invades the muscles. There's no known cause or cure. Her case turned deadly when the disease invaded her heart. In fact, in March of 2010, Mary was told by doctors that she had 24 to 48 hours to live. That's it. You will die in 24 to 48 hours this year, 2010. But after 20 days in a hospice center, another 51 days in rehab, and a number of days at home, Mary is still alive. She's now reflecting on the changes that that take place when you learn your time is short. In fact, all of us, (laughs) we don't know, right? But when you're faced with it, then you begin to think through it and the changes that come. She said, I call myself an average Christian. So here's, she's not Samuel Zwamer out in Bahrain or praying hide in the middle of India. She says, I call myself an average Christian. I don't know exactly why God has done this for me, but I do know that life looks different now. And she offers these five life lessons that she takes with her now. Know that prayer is powerful, mend fences now, release the reins of life to God, know that God is able more than able, and put your focus on what really matters. That's a Christ-centered life. The externals are still there. She's still sick or you still have a job. But when it's Christ-centered, you put your focus on what really matters, and you give the reins, the control of that life to him. Facing death has a way of bringing life into focus. So if you're here this morning, and you have spent your life filling it with work, trying to find fulfillment in your work, and you're not finding it, then you need to understand that you will never find it apart from Jesus Christ. So stop trying to do it all yourself. Let God take control. Focus on what really matters, those things that have eternal value. And happily follow Christ. Because for us, death is not the end of life in Jesus Christ. Father, Solomon certainly understand, understood what we struggle with in our lives today and how easy it is to become depressed with the pointlessness and the meaninglessness of all this stuff we do. And we have to do it. There are responsibilities there, and we understand that, but it seems so meaningless so often. And it is apart from you. Help us to fill our lives first with you this week so that everything we do is imbued with the joy of serving you, even if the circumstances are painful, even, with, even if the things are tough and frustrating. But we're doing it for you, and so we live for you and focus on you, Lord, and you bring joy and happiness into our lives. Knowing that one day, one day we will leave all of this behind. And we will live forever with you. And that is the ultimate joy. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.